Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. Hey, here's a joke. Um, what is the favorite key on a keyboard of an astronaut? I don't know. The space bar. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Oliver Ackerman from the band A Place to Bury Strangers. Creepy. Yes. They just kicked off a U.S. tour. Later, we'll speak with actor John Hamm, star of the new movie Friends with Kids, and of the new season of the TV show, Mad Men. Of course, also coming up, comedian and author Michael Ian Black insults us while telling you how to behave. We hear a new tune from the Baltimore duo Beach House, and British philosopher Alain de Botton explains religion for atheists. But first, news for newsies. And the news is, this is a podcast. Let's hear more of it. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Welcome to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. Later on, John Glazer, creator and star of Adult Swim's comedy show Delocated, lists some of his favorite high-concept ideas. Like a segment called Guest List, where a guest comes and makes a list. (laughs) Exactly, something like that. For instance. Also coming up, the story of Axis Sally. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. One year ago this weekend, a wall of water came ashore in Japan. South by Southwest is nearly upon us. It was a rollicking Super Tuesday with Romney looking like the apparent winner there, eventually. Now for something you might not have heard. We are speaking with Sadie Stein. She is deputy editor of the Paris Review. Sadie, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about a phenomenon, and I have to give credit to uh, my source, The Morning News. And The Morning News is like a culture website. Yes, a wonderful culture website. they're, They're very into literature. They are indeed. And in honor of book awards season, they have brought us this trend, All right, Nabokoving. Nabokov, a la Vladimir Nabokov, the author. A la Vladimir Nabokov, the author. Who who hasn't been with us for a while. So what is it and why are people doing it? (laughs) Well, I think it's a pretty obvious transition. I mean, we had T-bowing. So wait, so T-bowing was kneeling as though in prayer. Yeah. So Nabokoving is something physical that you do? If you've seen a picture of the author, he generally looks um, very serious and has his chin (laughs) balanced on his fist, a la Rodin's The Thinker. Hmm. So if you see middle schoolers lost in thought. <laughs> the, they're Nabokoving, you're saying. Yeah. They're, nab- they're obviously Nabokoving. <laughs> well, I would think, now Nabokov famously pursued butterflies, and he actually That's discovered true. several butterflies. I would think Nabokoving had, had more to do with like having a net or something yes, behind you. or running. That's so much less dramatic than, <laughs> than striking a pose and looking thoughtful. I want and, and, probably thinking about translating in your head from Russian into a multitude of other languages. I mean, this is how can this miss? It's going to be the yeah. biggest trend since Justin Bieber. I mean, why don't they just call it thinkering? Since that seems yeah, to be probably sounds... more well-known. Rodanning, maybe. Yeah. I think it's the expression on his face mm. that really makes it. It's a little bit skeptical. Mm-hmm. Unlike Tebow. You feel like when Nabokoving, someone has the answers, and mm. they're kind of looking at you, waiting for you <laughs> to find them. All right. But, you know, I don't like the idea of school children having anything to do with Nabokov. <laughs> That's <All> right. right. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, yeah, too, too late. Sorry. Wow. Sadie Stein, thanks for the suddenly disturbing small talk. (laughs) Thank you. Always a pleasure. And now, time for cocktails. 
Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our rarely imitated history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week, back in 1949, a judge sentenced Mildred Gillers to prison. Now, most folks at your dinner party won't know who she was or what the charges were. Mm -hmm. Michelle Philippi is here to tell you both. Mildred Gillers was an all-American girl who became an all-American traitor. It all started in 1932. Mildred was a struggling showgirl in New York City when she decided to follow her British boyfriend to Europe. But they broke up, and jobs didn't come any easier overseas. Until she landed a fateful gig as an English-language announcer with German State Radio. Her show was innocuous enough. She played records and talked about art. But as World War II heated up and other Americans fled Germany, Mildred stayed. Soon, she was heard around the world on commercial and shortwave radio, broadcasting Nazi propaganda. This is Berlin calling. Berlin calling the American mothers, wives, and I just like to say, girls, that when Berlin calls, it pays to listen. At first, Mildred's show was designed to discourage Americans from getting involved in World War II. When America got involved anyway, her job was to make Allied troops homesick and make their families turn against the war effort. You women in America, waiting for the one you love, thinking of the husband, the son, or the brother, who is being sacrificed by Franklin D. Roosevelt, perishing on the fringes of Europe. Perishing. Soldiers found her alternately depressing or ridiculous. But she also played great swing music, so they tuned in anyway. Eventually, they gave her a nickname, Axis Sally. After the war, Mildred was arrested and deported back home. At her trial, she tearfully swore she'd been under the spell of her Nazi producer, who was also her lover. Even so, she spent 12 years in jail. She later wound up teaching at a convent. And not long before her death, she got a college degree in drama. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for a drink to go along with it, and I'm going to need a drink after that history. I'm on the line with Matt McGrath. He is a bartender at Mouton in Columbus, Ohio. And that's where Mildred, a.k.a. Axis Sally, lived out her life. She was teaching in a convent. So Matt... That's the history. What drink did that inspire you to make? Well, I, uh, I came up with a cocktail called the Liquid Propaganda. Um, it's a playoff <laughs> of the classic aviation, and uh, we add a little Campari to it as well. It, it kind of pays homage to some of the Axis states as well as, uh, you know, airwaves and flying and whatnot. Liquid Propaganda. It's a great name. It's a good name for any drink, actually, because anyone who buys drinks for other people uh, will have a better chance of persuading them, you know? Yes. Okay, so tell me what's in your cocktail. Well, we start off with a sugared rim because, uh, you know, she had such a sweet voice. It was very kind of <laughs> misleading. Um, All right. Very good. Your main spirit is an ounce and a half of Plymouth gin. Okay. Uh, then you go with three-quarters ounce of lemon juice, about a quarter ounce of Luxardo, kind of paying homage to our friend Mussolini. <laughs> uh-huh. Luxardo is an Italian cherry liqueur. Exactly. Exactly. And then um, you just sink a little Campari at the end for that kind of bitter 
undertone. How, how are you preparing this? Are you putting it on the rocks, or what kind of glass are you using? Well, you add all the ingredients together, minus the Campari, and you shake it over ice, and then you strain it into a cocktail glass and sink the Campari between about a half ounce and a quarter ounce. Are, are you a native of Ohio, Matt? Yeah, born and raised. Go to Ohio State University right now. So do you find it surprising that a fellow Ohioan would uh, turn on America like this? You know, uh, I, I was a little surprised. Yeah, I had no idea, actually. And she also she went to Ohio Wesleyan, I believe, I read. Yeah, Ohio Wesleyan, yep. And so do they have a reputation for maybe being turncoats there? You know, uh, I, don't, I don't think so. <laughs> right. See, I'm trying to get you to betray your state. Yes, well, you know, I'm, I'm a solid American, so I would never. <laughs> <laughs> and, Brendan, we should note, there was another propaganda broadcaster who went by the name Axis Sally. Wow. Her name was Rita Zucca, but she worked out of Italy, and she went to jail after the war as well. I'm assuming not for copyright infringement, <laughs> for, for taking the Axis Sally's name. No, not okay. a lot of value in the Axis Sally <laughs> brand post-war. Uh, people, you can find all our drink recipes on our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is comedian and Emmy-winning writer John Glazer. He writes and stars in Delocated, a show on Adult Swim, about a family in the Witness Protection Program who star in a reality show. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. To remain anonymous, they wear ski masks at all times and have their voices altered to sound like this. Hey, there he is. Daddy. My man. So how's the show going? Oh, it's great. I'm still here, so... Yeah. Uh... <laughs> Needless to say, it's a unique concept. What some in the showbiz might call a high concept. Yes, and here's John to list some others. Hi, this is John Glazer. Here I am today with some of my favorite high concept ideas. Anyway, welcome back here to the world famous Phil Henry Show. Our number is 8778. The first one is a talk show DJ named Phil Henry. He's syndicated, but he's based in LA. What he does, he has a talk show, and he's the host. And then he has this stable of characters that he does. And he has a phone that he holds. So what he does, he'll call in to himself as these characters. And he just will play himself, he'll play the character, and he'll get in arguments with himself. And it's seamless. Uh, back with Clara Bingham here on the Phil Henry Show. Well, I believe you've made teachers very, very much the uh, target here, Phil. No, I, and I agree with you, the teachers. A lot of teachers do good work. What you're doing, though, taking the, the almost the power of God into your hands and saying, this child needs plastic surgery, and that child doesn't. <laughs> Let's go to D. Into and it's all fake, but he'll have the conversation with himself and then open it up to callers. And people call in livid. They think it's real, and it's brilliant. Thanks for calling us. You're on with Clara Bingham. Go ahead, ma'am. Yes. Um, I don't think I'm God. I, I can assure you, I don't think I'm God. Go ahead, Dee. Yes, I'm calling, uh, and I want to say that the message to this child is you're not okay. And any child is okay well, not, the way no, he looks. They're not. They're not okay. Go, let the lady finish, Dee. Go ahead. So he'll have this conversation with himself, with the callers. Sometimes he'll do multiple characters. All right. Here, and I think Lloyd, you have them. Let me get Lloyd. We're, what I'm doing, I'm conferencing him. And are you there, Lloyd? Yes, I'm driving home, and uh, I've got the uh, lyrics to the love part. And it's just to hear him do it, it's unreal. Another one that I thought of was either a piece of theater or of performance art. It was called The Angel Project. But I saw it here in New York. It's basically what it is it's a journey to a series of locations. 
you're, you don't know what's coming at each place. But the theme is all angels. And it took me about three stops in to realize, oh, that first one, outside of the building, it was right under the Queensboro Bridge. There was like a homeless guy hanging out. And I realized later, no, that was one of the actors they set up there. The, the scope of it was pretty amazing. It all culminated in the Chrysler building on like the 66th floor. And this one guy had a trench coat, but they had these like beautiful angel wings that they had made. It, <laughs> it sounds a little corny to describe it. And I think if you're not into it, you'd probably think, oh, this is stupid. But by the end, I was just so into just the idea of it. One, two, one, two, three, four. Another thing actually that comes to mind, I guess, as high concept is this band I was in called A Matter of Trust, an idea that a friend of mine, John Benjamin, had come up with, and it was me and him, Todd Barry, another comedian, and James McNew, who's the bass player from Yola Tango. We were a cover band for that Billy Joel song, Matter of Trust. The name of the band was Matter of Trust, and that's the only song we played. And we, <laughs> the new pornographers are big comedy fans, and they asked us to open for them <laughs> at a show at the, the Nokia Theater in Times Square, and it was they introduced us, we come out, we play that song, and then we did an encore and played the song again. <laughs> and then we walked off stage, and that was it. The guest list from John Glazer, his TV show Delocated, airs Thursdays at midnight on Adult Swim. And Rico, every time I think about his band, I totally crack up. <laughs> Maybe we should start the Matter of Trust radio show. <laughs> that's It'd be easy. You know, actually, I think there already are radio stations that only play Piano Man. Oh, that's so true. <laughs> it's not that. Yeah, it's not a new thing. <laughs> yeah. All right, coming up, actor John Hamm talks about the star system, literally. Two, like, galaxies collided, and all this dark matter came out. But we don't know what it is. That and other stuff we don't know when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, comic and author Michael Ian Black answers your etiquette questions for some reason. And in a few minutes, author Amelia Gray reads from her new novel, Threats. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's actor John Hamm. He plays the ad executive Don Draper on the acclaimed TV drama Mad Men, set in the 1960s. His performance earned him a Golden Globe Award. And his retro wardrobe earned the fashion industry billions of dollars in skinny tie sales. At least. The show's fifth season premieres in a couple of weeks. He also co-stars in Friends with Kids, a romantic comedy that comes out this weekend. When I met with him earlier this week, he had just come off the set of The Today Show. So I asked him one of our two standard questions. What question are you tired of being asked? The question I'm most tired of being asked is, what question are you tired of being asked? Really? I get it so much. It's like the 40th time I've been asked it in the last two days. Are you serious? I'm sorry. <laughs> totally not serious. No, I'm not serious at all. All right. Actually, I interviewed Sasha Gray. Uh, if, I don't know if you're familiar with her work. She's a porn star who then was in a Steven Soderbergh film. She said the same thing. That might be the only thing I have in common with Sasha Gray. <laughs> we both have dark hair. That's right. Okay, so you are familiar with her work. And I saw her on Entourage. Okay. Um, is there something you're just tired of explaining? Well, 
I mean, Jennifer and I have been together for 15 years now, going on 15 years, and are not married and don't have children. And that's Jennifer Westfeld, who is your partner and the writer and director and producer of the film. Yes. We constantly get asked, why aren't you married and why don't you have children? Which is, by turns, sort of impolitic, impolite, and unimpressive. So it's really nobody's business. Uh, and yet we are in the, in the business of being public figures, so our business becomes everybody's business. But, you know, what are you going to do? At a certain point, it's what you signed up for, and you try to handle it as gracefully as possible. Well, I'm not going to ask you that, because I'm graceful. But you are in a film called Friends with Kids, and it's written and directed by your partner. You are a co-producer, co-star. But the idea originated from your everyday life, right? I think so. Uh, it was an idea that Jen had been kind of kicking around with for a while once we started watching and living through what happens when everybody has kids and you're kind of out of sync with your with your peer group. And again, like I've, I've said it, I'm, I'm on record as, as both of us are, is we love kids. Like they're great, they're amazing. But once you have them, they, they take over your life in a way that I think most people aren't really prepared for. Because I, I, you, you can't prepare for it. There's no, there's no research you can really do. And so the kernel of an idea started, and this Jen wrote this awesome script, and we made this movie, and I, and I think it's a pretty good movie. So the season five of Mad Men comes out at the end of this month. For people who don't know, you play Don Drip. I'm actually really happy we're doing this by, by radio, because <laughs> people who don't know you, they won't know how strikingly handsome you are, and we can actually be equals here. On <laughs> um, So season five, Don Draper, this guy, you've been living with this guy for a long time now. What does it feel like when you're off the set with him? Does it feel like, is it a costume you put on and take off? Or is, is it, does he linger with you like a memory of a... Uh, no, uh, it's, it's, it goes away. And it's remarkable how fast it comes back. Because we had a really long layoff between season four and season five. So it was kind of like everybody had to kind of get their sea legs back and yeah. kind of like, oh yeah, geez, oh man. But I mean, once you step on those sets and you've got your hair done and you got all your stuff on and it really does feel like a different person. But uh, it's also the opposite is true. Once you step off and you take the stuff off and mess your yeah. hair up, and you're like, oh, all right. And, and sometimes the stories we tell are, are intense and, and it's nice to be able to, to leave that. That's it. And then you go home because your other roles that people enjoy you in as host of SNL and 30 Rock, completely different side. Well, it's also nice that and strange that this particular job, Mad Men, has given me the opportunity to do something so wildly different as host SNL and, and be on 30 Rock. When, when they asked me to host Saturday Night Live, I, when I came to, basically, because I probably passed out, but I thought, like, why? I mean, I'm, ha I'm thrilled, but like, why would you think like, oh, the guy from Mad Men, let's get him on the, the sketch comedy show. Yeah. That'll, that's a good fit. Um, but Lorne, for whatever, in his infinite wisdom, like for whatever reason, was just like, you'll be great. Let's, let's just do it. But you said you were shocked, but you've been in theater your whole, your whole life, right? I mean, in high school, weren't you even in Godspell? Yeah, I was, yeah. <laughs> that seems crazy. John Hammond Godspell seems crazier than John Hammond Saturday Night Live. <laughs> yeah, well, I was 18, you know. God, 23 years ago. Don't deny your Godspell past, John. No, I don't. I glorify it. I celebrate it. Uh, and then you went back and you taught theater for a while, right? So you're, you know how to be in front of a live audience. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable on stage. I, I, don't, I don't mind doing it. In fact, I like it. No one starts their career in television, I don't think. Unless you're, you know, a little kid or whatever, but you're like Ryan Gosling was a Disney kid, and there's that classic track. You weren't, you didn't follow such a classic path. You know, you've said in many interviews, you went out to Hollywood. You at 25, you gave yourself a handful of years to make it, 
And then you said if you didn't break through at 30, you'd maybe return to your home of St. Louis or do something else. But where would you have gone? What do you think you would have, what would an alternate life have been for John Hamm? I don't know, honestly, like uh, the good thing about St. Louis is it's a, it's a fairly constant, it's a constant in my life. It's a very, it's a very comforting place to me. Even when I go back now and, and I, I don't recognize a lot of parts of it just because I've been gone for so long. But, and I, I don't know, I probably would have tried to go back to teaching or, or, or something. And the good thing is I, I probably would have been welcomed back. You don't have other, another fantasy life beyond acting or teaching acting? Well, I, I wanted to be a professional baseball player. I mean, that was, you know, what I was really planning on doing. And then I realized I didn't have the talent. So, uh, the classic St. Louis dream of it. Yes. I mean, that's, you know, I grew up watching the Cardinals and thinking, well, I'm, uh, there's a great Dennis Leary joke. He's talking about people whining about not getting what they wanted and whatever. And, and his, his line is something like, you know what? I thought I was going to grow up to play center field for the Boston Red Sox. Life sucks. Get a helmet. You know, like that's the way it goes. Sometimes it doesn't work out. Um, no, that was, that, was my, that was my dream, but come on. Well, you got the booby prize. Yeah, exactly. I got the booby prize. Um, this is a request we ask of each guest. Tell us something we don't know, either about you or an interesting fact about the world. Um, something we don't know. You know what we don't know? What don't we know? What dark matter is. We don't know what it is. We know it exists, but we don't know what it is. And there's just been, they just discovered a huge blob of it out and two, two like galaxies collided and all this dark matter came out. But we don't know what it is. Do you follow science? I do. Uh, I, I, and I have for a long time. I'm a big... I like to know why things happen and why things work. And I like to follow people that try to explain it. I'm a math, I'm a, that's why I like math, because in math there are answers. Um, and in science there are answers, except when there aren't. Except there. And perhaps your, your uh, celebrated role as Don Draper, that's an exploration in dark matter in some level. Uh, that's a very nice uh, way to tie that up. Enrico, I met John in this swank, old-world suite at the Waldorf Astoria in Manhattan. Nice. He was, like, wearing a fresh press suit, and for the first few minutes, I had to remind myself I was talking to John Hamm, not Don Draper. Wow. Totally disorienting. So he doesn't totally shed his character when he's off the set, I guess. No, exactly. That's a lie. But what kept me grounded was the fact that he was drinking water and not scotch. Oh. So, yeah. Yeah. And I guess you can't <laughs> chain smoke at the Waldorf anymore, either. N- not anymore. Yeah, telltale sign. Uh, folks... One could argue we're real characters. (laughs) Learn more about us at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time to eavesdrop. The LA Times listed Amelia Gray as one of their authors to watch in 2012. She just released her third book. Today we overhear her reading a dinner party worthy excerpt. My name is Amelia Gray. My book is called Threats. It's about a man whose wife has died, and he's in a grief spiral. As he moves through his world, he finds these mysterious threats. He's not sure where they're coming from, and he's not sure who wrote them. He is potentially losing his mind. In this scene, David is remembering his wife. Franny never came to David in dreams, and he respected her for that. He had heard of ghosts that moved through empty houses, opening cabinets or moaning in the hallway. There was the variety of ghosts that sat at the foot of the bed and smiled, 
but when you reached toward it, you found only the sheets twisted around your legs and the darkness of the room beyond. Ghosts might leave footprints on a porch or follow you down a crowded street, staying just far enough behind and ducking into an alley every time you turned around. There was the kind of ghost who would fill a room with her scent. There were ghosts that traveled in a collective of ghosts, making a competition of it, ticking points off their list as they haunted the darker hallways of historical buildings. There were ghosts that disguised themselves as glowing orbs in photographs, in such a way that some people would claim they were simple tricks of the light, overexposure of the camera or imperfections in the lens, while others would doubt the trick and believe. The ghosts, which could have appeared in any shape, orb-like or otherwise, had the power to trick the living while still making their presence known. All ghosts found this to be very funny. Some ghosts were mute, and other ghosts murmured to keep themselves company. Some had the power to throw chains against walls, but they were ghost chains, and behaved differently from chains one might find wrapped in a coil at a hardware store. There was sound without weight, because the ghosts rarely had the power to lift more than the individual hairs on a pair of arms. It was a frustration to the ghosts, many of whom had spent long lives lifting things. Ghosts tended to express their frustration by causing trouble. A few dug around in trash cans. They pulled out cotton swabs and left them scattered around the room. When the victim entered, he worried that things were not as they seemed. If Franny was out there, somewhere, frustrated, she made no sign. She was the type to employ the silent treatment. He remembered her frowning past him, sitting alone on the couch with one of her magazines, then taking the magazine and heading out back. She always seemed to end up in the woods behind the house when she was upset. He followed her out there once and found her standing by the stream on the far side of the farmer's fence. The stream was dry most of the year, or covered in snow or leaves from the ash trees or ice, forming a thin line of flowing water when it warmed up enough for the snow to melt. When she saw he had followed her, Franny turned around and went back inside, and there was no dinner later. David toasted a piece of bread. After that, he let her stay in the woods as long as she wished. She would go out unannounced and stay all day, returning hours later with webs in her hair. Writer Amelia Gray reading from her just-released novel, Threats, and you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. And Brendan, St. Patrick's Day is coming up this week. Oh, man. Yeah. That sound (laughs) you hear is thousands of college students' livers screaming in fear. Not the green beer! shouting. (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, a lot of people don't realize the Irish actually make some very tasty food in addition to Guinness. That's right. They have whiskey. <laughs> and in addition to whiskey. Like, for instance, they have this item. It is called a box tea. I hadn't heard about it. Is that Gaelic? It, I guess. I hadn't heard about it either. So I went to a gastropub in Santa Monica. It's called Finn McCool's, uh-huh. where Chef Geraldine Gilliland serves an entire box tea menu. First, though, I asked her what makes her pub special. The pub actually came from Ireland. 
Uh, we shipped all the furniture, everything you're sitting on, all the decor, the tchotchkes, the bric-a-brac, it's actually called, the bar, the curtains, the Irish stained glass, and we shipped it up in storage containers from Ireland through the Panama Canal. A crew of Irish carpenters and an Irish painter came in and they rebuilt it here. Now that's a lot of dedication. I mean, this stuff is absolutely beautiful. Did it need to be done that way? You're absolutely right. But especially the, the stained glass is really something we couldn't have replicated here. All right, but something you did replicate here is this dish that I'm here to try, the box tea. I, I'm surprised because as I researched it, it's actually a fairly common dish, it sounds like, in parts of Ireland, but I'd never heard of it. Actually, I left Ireland when I was in my 20s, and it wasn't really that popular when I was growing up. I actually discovered it in America. Um, it is the quintessential potato pancake. But if it's not so popular in, in Ireland, how did it become quintessential? Well, it's now it's gotten its... You see, when I left Ireland, the culinary arts were not... You know, they made jokes about us. <laughs> and, you know, the whole thing changed with the food revolution that happened really in the early 80s. And so they discovered dishes like this. They rediscovered them, I should say. So now it is really, really popular. Whole restaurants are devoted in Ireland to box teas. So what, it's a potato pancake. What distinguishes it from, say, a latke, which is the one that springs to my mind? Um, well, there are two kinds of box teas that we're looking at. One is the griddled boxy and one is the pan boxy. So the one on the left is the griddled boxy and it's... It's a huge, soft potato pancake. It's like a crepe almost, very thin. It looks actually kind of like a tortilla, but maybe that's just because I've been living in Southern California too long. Yeah, it, but our box tea is using raw potato. In the olden days, they probably used leftover mashed potato, if, if there was any leftover potatoes, which there probably wasn't. So it's kind of like a tortilla, and it actually, it's folded over, and inside the fold are just a big pile of, I guess in this case, chicken? Chicken, basil, mushrooms, red peppers, green peppers, some Irish cheese, and like a little butter and a little cream. I am really surprised. It does kind of look like a cross between a Mexican dish and a French dish. Um, it's not something that I would associate somehow with Ireland. Ireland. Well, most people serve the boxy rolled up like a burrito. I just don't like that presentation. So I prefer to serve it like this, fold it over in half. So this is... It's <laughs> An Irish burrito made with a crepe-like potato thing. Of course. That is a, that is amazing, because it is, it really doesn't, I think more of pies when I think of Ireland. It, it is definitely new Irish cuisine, this presentation. The original box tea, they probably had nothing to put in it, really. They probably had bits and pieces of bacon, black pudding, do you know what that is? Yeah, it's blood. It's blood, blood. Sausage. Yeah, it's blood sausage. So this probably would have been just like, you know, the Mexican burrito, where they literally put the food in and rolled it up and had it in the fields when they were digging. All right, so I'm going to... Taste just the crepey part of it first. Mmm. It has kind of a gravy. What is this gravy made? Mm, chicken, you know, chicken and cream and a little onion and garlic. It's really, really good. It actually does have, because of the cream and the onion, there's a bit of a French quality to it. So this is your twist on it. This, this is our twist. Yeah, this is a twist. I can't imagine that the olden Irish would have much to do with the French. No, and they wouldn't have anything like the ingredients we have here. It's excellent. At the risk of uh, ruining my appetite, let's move on to this other kind you've got, which seems to be surrounded by gravlox. This looks more like a potato pancake of, you know, my Jewish-Italian youth. This is the back boxy in the pan, but we actually don't call it that because we don't want to confuse people. We call it um, a potato parsnip pancake. 
So in this one, we put parsnips in it because that was another root vegetable that was really popular. So this is potatoes and parsnips fried more like a latke. Exactly. Very crispy and small. And then it's topped with a horseradish uh, creme fraiche and then the gravlax. Again, I, I would assume that creme fraiche was not uh, what would have been used in the old no, days. You know, in the old days, people didn't have refrigerators. Like my own grandmother had a meat safe out in her backyard so we would put the food out there and the cream would just curdle overnight so we would have what you call sour cream this honestly looks like something that could have been served at my bar mitzvah it actually it's really similar i think a lot of our histories with regards to food uh, they kind of meld this is really good it is really good isn't it it is a little room temperature now but it's normally served with the pancake hot yeah the pancakes very hot and crispy and then the cold salmon and the cold cream it's delicious I have to say, though, I imagine that when the St. Patrick's revelers are, arrive, I feel like this is maybe a little too highbrow for this that is group. Not on the, this particular one is not on the menu for St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> You're not going to waste the gravlocks on those peeps. No, no. So, Brendan, that's two reasons to go to Finn McCool's after St. Patrick's Day has passed. First off, they don't serve the pan box with the salmon that night. Okay. And also, Geraldine told me the line to get in on St. Patrick's Day is three hours long. <laughs> Which, yes. interestingly, is about how long it takes to pour Guinness. So, if you could text in your order, you'd be in good shape. Right. By the time you get in, your pint is ready. That's right. It's very practical. Yeah. All right, folks. Coming up, a beautiful new tune from the band Beach House. Mm. And humorous Michael Ian Black gives us this etiquette tip. Always berate, belittle, and insult with respect. He's the Gandhi of our age. <laughs> All that and more when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear a brand new tune from the band Beach House. And coming up, Alain de Botton anoints Brendan High Priest of Radio. The guy who leads the radio show is called a host. Now, host is a religious term. So does that make me Archbishop of Radio? Either that or altar boy, I don't know. But and speaking of receiving moral instruction... <laughs> It's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and we invite a person of substance to answer them. And this week we are happy to have Michael Ian Black with us. He is one of the comic minds behind the sketch comedy troupe The State. He helped create and start in the Comedy Central show Stella, and Michael and Michael have issues. But the reason we figured he would be qualified to tell our listeners how to behave is because this past week he published a memoir called... You're not doing it right. And and I don't think I've ever offended anybody in the course of my career. So certainly when you're looking for matters of etiquette, mm. I'm the go-to guy. Oh, yeah. You stupid jerks. <laughs> Although I will say that once we actually read the book, it turns out you're not doing it right is a phrase that is said to you by your wife. Oh, yes. It's not an admonition on my part no. to uh, to the reading public. It's it's self-directed. It's direct. Yeah. My wife says it to me, and then it's something I repeat to myself over and over again throughout the course of my life. I go through life feeling as if I am flailing and incompetent and inept and utterly out of control of my own destiny. <laughs> Perfect. And well, thus we yes, brought you here. That's why you're here to answer our listeners' questions. So you I can... certainly never anticipated this moment <laughs> would ever arrive, and yet here I am. So our first question comes from someone else named Michael. Hopefully you didn't send this one in. And it says, I'm an uncle. Can I berate a niece or nephew as their parent would? 
I guess I need to know how their parent berates the child to know whether or not it's appropriate for the uncle to engage in similar acts of beratement. I see. If the parent is going, you fat cow, <laughs> get off the couch, then I would say no. Yeah, You no. shouldn't do that. Berate with respect is my motto. I... Always berate, belittle, and insult. <laughs> With respect. With utmost respect and charm. Mm -hmm. the, uh, you, you yourself are, are a father. Have you been in a situation similar before, perhaps? You know, my wife and I actually have had this, this conversation many times, and we both kind of feel the same way. In the situation where an adult is present and responsible for the children, it is actually appropriate to speak sternly to them to make sure that they are heeding your instructions. I have no problem uh, speaking sternly to my children's friends. Wow. And so do your children have a lot of friends left? <laughs> oh, no. No, no, no. But my, but my children were not, were not going to be well-liked anyway. I mean, if you, if you met my children, you'd be like, oh. Here, here's our second question. Here's, here's a question from Sarah Kay in Ridgewood, New Jersey. She asks, when you're privy to your friends making plans via Twitter for a get-together, is it rude to tweet if you can attend? Wait, I'm not sure I understand. So yeah, two friends I. are making plans over Twitter, so they're doing it in a public domain. Exactly. But you see that they're making plans. Are you allowed to then invite, invite yourself? yourself? Right. I am... See, I never feel like I am welcome in any situation. <laughs> I'm always one of these guys who, who thinks, oh, well, they, they, they couldn't possibly want my attendance there, and so I'm not going to insert myself into this equation. But, like, my wife is one of these people who will, who will say, can I come along? And I think that, I think if they're, if they're having a public conversation, which is what Twitter is, right. I see no reason why you shouldn't be able to say, hey, can I join you guys too? That sounds like fun. I'd love sure. to go see Wanderlust, for example. <laughs> a movie in which, which I may or may not be in. Let's just say for the sake of argument that I am. Mm, interesting. <laughs> All right. Claire Ann in St. Paul has a question. Uh, she writes, I grew up at a time and place where no one drank out of bottles. It just wasn't done. You didn't drink out of bottles. Okay. Oh, I see. Bottles were available yeah, just yeah. as a matter of etiquette. Nobody did. Exactly. Yeah, I thought she grew up in Antarctica. Yes, she would always, she goes on to say, I would always provide glasses when I have people over to eat, into which you can pour bottled beverages. Mm -hmm. But sometimes people drink out of the bottles anyway. <sighs> Is there any way to finesse keeping bottles off the dinner party table? Yes, absolutely. First of all, if this is bothering you, you need a therapist. Yes. <laughs> let, me, let me just turn the table slightly and say, if you're having a dinner party, the goal of the dinner party is to gather friends together for conviviality. If you're mm. then setting limits on the conviviality that they are allowed to have, chances are that's not going to be a very fun dinner party. No. That being yeah. said, if you would like... Uh, liquids in a glass container to be poured into different glass containers, if that's important to you. Or from one bottle like into a, another. It's like a science experiment. Right. I guess I would suggest making sure there is attractive glassware on the table and uh, maybe asking if they can, if you can pour their beverage for them into the glass. And if they say, I'm fine, then let it go. <laughs> or how about just pour it into the glass already and don't have the bottle anywhere near the dinner table? Because what happens sometimes is if you hand me a Stewart's cream soda, which come in lovely bottles, yeah, by the way, yeah. and I'm holding it in the cocktail hour and then we're seated for dinner, I might still be carrying that bottle right. as I seat myself at the splendid dining room table, in which case you may say, may I pour that for you? And then I would say, oh, don't worry about it. And then you would let it go. <laughs> <laughs> or smash but you know it what, guys? Guys, less less do you think Claren is a prig? I would suggest I, this bothers me because people bring a Pepsi bottle to the table. Well, what do you care? Stewart's bottle, and then it looks like Times Square at your table. You know, you <laughs> That's have this cool. beautiful meal, and all of a sudden there's all these advertisements, and then in the back it's like oh, well, NASCAR send in four UPCs for 
and it kind of pollutes the environment. So you object to the commercialization exactly. of beverages. I don't object to it. I just don't need to stare at, you know, five UPC symbols for a free koozie on, on my dinner table. I understand, <laughs> and yet uh, I would say focus on the conversation, not on the UPC labels. Okay. All right, good point. All right, here's our last First question. First of all, if you're the kind of person who's serving soda pop at a dinner party anyway, <laughs> deal with the consequences of that decision. You were the one who brought the stewards up. Well, but because there's nothing else that comes in bottles. I guess I was thinking I used to, one. you know, dating someone who had a little brother who, you know, you'd have pizza and they'd bring the soda. That's not a dinner party necessarily, but he'd bring the soda bottle to the no, table. that's a child's birthday party and you're getting bent out of shape at a child's birthday party you know that they're what? bringing a bottle to the table. Okay. You sound like a nightmare. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Nice. Now you're dissing the host. You're not doing this right either, Michael. Uh, all right. We have one more question. And it is, uh, what's the most memorable get-together you've ever been to? Who, what, where? Details, please. Well, when I was invited to Truman Capote's white party, <laughs> wow. obviously that was the social event of the year. It was me, it was Truman, it was Mick, mm. uh, it was Halston, Babs was there, everybody was there. Anybody. <laughs> it was a night of debauchery, I dare mm. say. Some things happened at that party that I'm saving for my second volume of memoirs. <laughs> you know, Obviously, look, the party was chronicled in the pages of Vanity Fair. <laughs> Books have been written about the party, and all I can say is none of them have done justice to the actual experience seeing truman capote's naked backside flopping into a swimming pool at three o'clock in the morning cigarillo in hand uh, yes. martini sloshing out of his glass as he bellowed uh, i am in cold blood is one of the <laughs> finest memories of my life not easily replaced Man, wow. and and you were there. That or the, uh, the my kid's party at Chuck E. Cheese. One of those two. <laughs> All right, Michael Ian Black, thanks so much for telling our audience how to behave. My pleasure. <laughs> oh, that was wonderful. You wrote that down, I bet. I did. I'm reading it from a script. <laughs> Michael Ian Black, who can only visit me if he leaves his bottle at the door, has a new book out called You're Not Doing It Right, Tales of Marriage, Sex, Death, and Other Humiliations. And see, that bit about the bottle actually goes to show that there are no hard and fast rules for etiquette. True. But we can provide guidance, or at least use your questions as a starting point for a silly conversation. <laughs> exactly. If you want your etiquette question answered, send it to us via our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. Or via our hotline, a.k.a. the phone in my cubicle. The number is 213-621-3554. It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we talk to someone who knows something that we don't, so if the topic comes up in conversation, we can hold our own. This week, our teacher is Alain de Bouton. The topic is his new book, Religion for Atheists, A Non-Believer's Guide to the Uses of Religion. So Alain, your book's thesis is that atheists can learn a thing or two from religion. Yep. Uh, you started off by saying that you yourself are an atheist. Sure. But you have found some useful, even consoling ideas that appeal to you and that may appeal to other people who are non-believers. Yep. I mean, I start my book very bluntly by going, I'm just going to assert here, um, and the arguments, you know, are elsewhere and stated better by other people, but I'm going to assert that God does not exist, of course. Now let's move yeah. on. So I'm, I, I allow myself deliberately and polemically to move on from that question quite quickly in order to address the bigger question, which is, okay, so how do we construct a good life and a good world? 
Yeah, it's not as catchy as Nietzsche, but um, it works. <laughs> it's a strong open. So while writing this book, what was the most useful idea you found that religion can share with non-believers? Uh, one extraordinary uh, proposition that uh, religion makes is that human life is so difficult that we're not going to be able to get through it without an awful lot of guidance. Um, mm. In other words, adults face so many challenges in their relationships, in their workplace, uh, in relation to broader questions of, of meaning and their mortality, that um, they, they're going to need something uh, to appeal to, to um, look to as a source of wisdom, as a source of community, as a source of uh, ethical uh, reminders. Uh, so, so that's what religions believe that, you know, that people need. And I kind of agree to that. I mean, I'm, I'm in the odd position of thinking um, the specific doctrines and ideas that religion puts forward are often not ones that I'm in sympathy with. But I like their conception that getting through life um, is going to require a bit more support and structure, if you like, than the secular mm. world often allows for. You don't think a blend of enlightenment thinking and uh, democracy can kind of provide that structure for us? I think that we have so many good ideas in enlightened secular society. So uh, at one level, the answer to your question is absolutely. The problem is our good ideas don't stick in the sense that our commitments to all sorts of rather nice things like love and kindness and wonder and gratitude and forgiveness, um, all these things that we believe in intellectually don't have traction necessarily on society and on individuals at a day-to-day -day level. And modern politics is, is, you know, just shows that up. So I think what's interesting about religions is they are supreme mechanisms for making ideas stick. Well, you discuss in your book that one of the ways religions make things stick is through the use of ritual. And one of the religious rituals that you discovered that you think the secular world uh, can benefit from is an agape feast. Can you explain... Uh, what agape feasts are and why you think they're useful. Sure. Well, one of the things that all the major religions go in for is breaking bread together, is uh, mm. creating meals that are communal, properly communal, and allow in strangers, perhaps even strangers from other faiths or from no faiths at all. Um, yeah. A kind of open-ended hospitality is a feature of the traditional faiths. And you have to remember that before the mass became a service for the uh, you know, holy communion was something you did in a, in a church, it took yeah. place around a table as a communal meal between friends and strangers. And these were known as agape feasts, um, literally in agape, ancient Greek for love, love feasts. And they were described as such because they were about remembering the message of love that Jesus had given. Apparently, they got a little bit out of hand. Sometimes when people had a little bit too much to drink, the love that Jesus had proposed turned into, um, well, we'd say a little bit raunchy. So um, eventually, this was uh, uh, people put an end to this and uh, uh, things entered the church and became a bit more sober. But looking across the, you know, the history of religions, I was rather fascinated by this tradition because you, you, it crops up in, in other faiths as well. And my thought was, there's something going on here about renewing social bonds through communal eating that the secular world uh, could very easily learn from without needing to accept anything supernatural at all. But don't you think we're doing this on some level? I mean, particularly, I'm guessing, the people who are most likely to buy your book, you know, they're going out to restaurants, they're attending dinner parties. 
Isn't that how they encounter other people? Well, I think there's a really big difference. The, the modern world, of course, has occasions of sociability, but it doesn't reliably, outside the world of work, have mechanisms for turning strangers into friends. And I think one of the common mm. complaints that people make of the modern world is we're not so hot on community, that community building is something we're quite bad at doing. Of course, there are professional organizations or groups of friends who have a shared interest in, you know, fly fishing or ice hockey. That's not the problem. The problem is how does the vast an anonymity of contemporary society get broken down? And we tend to wander around the modern world with our heads down, our arms crossed, expecting that the stranger is going to be a person of infinite hostility or strangeness. And, yeah. uh, you know, religions have these mechanisms for trying to break down those uh, suspicions, which I think, you know, w one can look at and, and learn from, not everything from, but certainly some fascinating insights. Certainly be a lot easier than inventing a radio show just to talk to people you think are interesting. So, <laughs> well, of course, I mean, radio shows do, do um, <laughs> present that function. It's interesting that you know, the guy who leads the radio show is called a host. Now, host yeah. is a religious term. Um, that's precisely what religions uh, believe that they're in the business of doing, hosting connections between strangers. So in that sense, the modern radio has uh, definitely learned, um, even unconsciously, from religious tradition. So did you just consecrate me as a secular priest? <laughs> I, I, I think that just <laughs> happened, yeah. I'm going to put that on my bio. <laughs> uh, Alon, yeah, thanks exactly. so much for coming by and chatting with us. Okay, thank you so much. And Father Galliano? Yes, Father Newton. I was thinking we should switch from communion wine to communion gin. Oh, good idea. And a pan-boxy wafer, perhaps. Yes, indeed. Uh... <laughs> Folks, that is the dinner party for this week. Next week, actor Ewan McGregor talks about being a well-rounded performer. The idea of just being sort of two-dimensionally male isn't very interesting. Thanks to ultramanly Jackson Musker, the yeah. assistant producer of the dinner party. Thanks also to Bill Lance, Chris Holacek, Peter Clowney, Judy McAlpin, and to all of our friends at Public Radio's business show, Marketplace. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this weekend's dinner parties. Beach House is a dreamy pop duo from Baltimore. This week, they announced they'll have a new album out in May on Sub Pop Records. It'll be called Bloom. Here's a new track from it called Myth. Bon appétit.
Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. It's been a great show. Uh, Once again, thanks for attending the dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And now for our encore.